Welcome to Theatetus, the podcast that turns thinking into an adventure. I'm your host, Justin, just an average guy with an insatiable curiosity about how we know what we know. Join me as I explore the power of thought and uncover the hidden truths of our inner world. This is Theatetus. Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Theatetus podcast, where we're exploring epistemology and we're demonstrating the tools of critical thinking. First things first, I want to introduce myself. I'm the host. My name is Justin. And let me tell you a little bit about what you are embarking on by choosing to listen to Theotetus. What we really are seeking to do here is explore epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. Uh, more specifically, it's the study of how we distinguish fact from opinion. So we're going to explore that um, in a few different ways. And then we're also going to dive into critical thinking. And what I really would like to do is I want to demonstrate the tools of critical thinking on this podcast. That's why I wanted to do this kind of thing in podcast form. And more on that later. We'll get to that. Now, you might be asking yourself, why, first of all, why did I navigate to a podcast about epistemology of all things? And while I can't answer that, I would like to tell you why you should stay here, why epistemology and critical thinking matter. And the way I'd like to do it is to go through my own epistemological journey. Uh, I think it really illustrates the, the problems that I saw in my own life and in the world from a lack of understanding about these subjects and how I came to see how important they were. So a little bit about me. My name is Justin. I'm in my mid-30s. I live in northern Utah. I'm married to an amazing woman named Hannah, and I have three awesome kids that are all eight years old and under. But where the story really starts is in my upbringing. Now, I grew up in the same city that I still live in. I'm one of those that where the apple hasn't fall, fallen far from the tree. But I have fallen pretty far from the tree in terms of how I think. So I was raised pretty religiously. My family belongs to a church, and we were very active in that church as I was growing up. It permeated a lot of how we lived our family life, and then in turn, how I lived my own personal life. Uh, it was good. I learned a lot of good moral lessons. I, I'm still, you know, I still participate in that church, so it's not like it's been a bad influence on me at all. But there, there is a component of it that I felt the need to dig a little deeper and understand a little bit more. Because when I was growing up, and part of this is just being a kid, but there's also a part of it that just, it, it exists in religion, where there's, there's kind of this tacit knowledge that everyone in the tribe or the religion, everyone has, where this is the way things work. We all have a certain set of beliefs, and adherence to those beliefs means that you're good with God, that your life is going to go better, not necessarily that you're going to be rich and wealthy and famous and happy, but that you're going to feel better about your life. You're going to go through life feeling happier and more peaceful. And there's also dogma that exists in pretty much any religion. I mean, let's be honest. And for those that maybe aren't familiar with that term, dogma just means it's a, it's a belief that is above question and it's above criticism. 
pretty much any religion is going to have some form of dogma. So I, I kind of grew up this way with having those things around. And what that, what that created for me was we kind of had this, this tribe, this group, whether it was our church, our community, um, our political party, my family, there were these groups and all of it was pretty tied together because it was a, a fairly tight knit community that I grew up in. But there's these groups where we all have these, this same value system and we all have a clear or a common understanding of here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. Here's the way you live. Here's the way you don't live. And it was all really cut and dry, really straightforward. Uh, some, some examples of that are things like, like prayer, you know, it's just growing up in a religious family. It's just assumed that if I pray and I ask God about something that I'm going to get an answer. I never really doubted that. I never questioned that. I, I, from a young age, trusted God was there. He wanted to talk to me if I talked to him. And so therefore, that was something we believed in. This is not to talk, to be critical of any of these groups that I grew up with. They were great. I've been taught a lot of good things. I've been raised in a lot, in really good ways. It's just that I was never actively taught to question the beliefs that were given to me and that were accepted by these different tribes that I belonged to. Well, fast forward to 2015. I was married, had one kid at the time, and we're in the midst of a very heated presidential election. And also at the same time, at the beginning of that year, I had set my first, this is the first time I'd ever done this. I set an annual goal of how many books I wanted to read. I set the goal of 20 books. I didn't end up getting it, but I had the goal of 20 books. Um, I've continued with that goal. Well, similar goals, just a, a goal of, you know, books I wanted to read for the year. I've continued with that uh, through till now, but that was my first year that I did it. So these two things kind of combined to push me out of my epistemological comfort zone. So I'm seeing, first of all, let's talk about the political environment. I was, and I, I don't want to go into politics in this podcast. It's really not what this is about. Religion either. I don't want to get into religion too much. It's it's. I'm more interested in epistemology, the reasons that we believe the things we do, and how we can decide what's opinion and what's fact, rather than you know different religions or different political parties, political ideologies. I'm I'm not interested in exploring that. But this was part of um, my journey to the place that I'm at. Is I started to see the within this tribe that I'd always belonged to things that I didn't agree with, things that people accepted and believed and promoted that I suddenly did not agree with. And that felt really, really odd. It, it felt really disconcerting to suddenly be at odds with my tribes that I'd always belonged to. So that kind of got me in this place where I'm starting to feel, you know, a little bit disoriented. And along with that, I start noticing, as, as many other people did at this time, started noticing 
how different groups started to demonize the other side, specifically if we're talking politics. Like I saw how po- the political two different political parties in the United States were really demonizing each other in a way that I hadn't seen before, on a scale I hadn't seen before. And I also noticed that with the rise of social media, that it was really easy for us to get into these echo chambers where we were never taught really talking to the other side. And so we were getting very, very polarized because we would never really have common discussions with each other. And because of that, we would come come to the table when we would have to talk to each other, you know, presidential elections, for example, we'd come to the table with these different sets of what we called facts. And when those two things didn't reconcile, you know, we'd point at the other side and say, those guys are insane or those guys are liars because they don't have the same facts that we do. They're trying to deceive people. And, you know, I'm watching this feeling really, really disoriented at first, just not, not sure how to process all of this. And it gets me really wondering, how can we collectively agree on what is true? And that's when I started getting really interested in epistemology. I wouldn't learn that word for a couple years, but I got interested in the subject of how can a group of diverse people come to an agreement on what is true? And I mean, it doesn't have to be total consensus, but how can we actually like at least agree on what the facts are so that we can have a conversation to at least move forward from there? So I got, I got really interested in that. Now, the second part of this epistemological crisis, I guess you could call it, was that reading goal that I'd set. One of the books that I picked up was Elegant Universe by Brian Greene. Now, I don't want this to deter you from reading that book because it's fantastic. I loved it. I learned so much about uh, physics and what we, what we actually understand about the world, about the cosmos, and then the things that we don't understand, that we just were able to observe how it works, but we really don't understand it yet. And as I was learning about these things, I was learning about like relativity. I'm sure most people have heard about the theory of relativity, but I'd never dove into the subject quite to the level that I did. Consequently, after that book, one of the ones that I then followed up with was um, Einstein's Special and general theories of relativity, I think is what his book's called. But So I really dove into that. I wanted to understand relativity. And relativity, really, if, if you've read about it, it, it's how time and space are dependent on our speed relative to others. And it's the craziest thing to learn about because... You know, with Newtonian physics that most of us learned about in high school or have learned by just observing the world, time and space are constant. They don't change. Like time always marches along at the same rate. And that's how that's how physicists had been dealing. Well, not just physicists, mathematicians, scientists had been dealing with time ever since the time of Newton. All of a sudden, with Einstein's theories that have since been proven, 
time is relative. Time can contract and expand. It can go faster or slower for you relative to another person. If I'm traveling near the speed of light relative to another person, then time for me is going to go much, much slower. In theory, if I reached the speed of light, time would actually stop. It can be mathematically proven that that's not possible, but the closer you get to the speed of light, the more time slows down. Crazy stuff. Same with with space. Space actually expands and contracts. They call it length contraction. So these things that I had always thought were constant and didn't change, I'm learning, whoa, these things can change. Then the book goes down to the quantum level. And at the quantum scale, things get really weird. You have things like an electron can exist in two different places at once. And the laws of physics, as we know and understand them, completely break down when you get to the quantum level. And things seem to work in their own weird way down there. And as I'm reading that stuff, I'm starting to think about quantum means we're going down to the subatomic level. So smaller than atoms. But everything is made of atoms. So if you go smaller than atoms, you're, you, that's still everything. Everything that exists inside of an atom is what makes up everything we know. Everything in our universe, like all matter, is made of atoms. And when I started learning that we don't understand how those things work, like they don't make any sense, that was a little bit jarring. It started to kind of break down these maybe not a religious dogma, but some of the kind of scientific or, or real world dogma that I, I had had for myself of that I understood how the world worked. I understood how time worked. <laughs> All of a sudden I realized I don't know. And that, that kind of felt like the rug getting pulled out from under me. So that made me start asking, how on earth can I know what is true when we don't even seem to understand the very nature of reality. So that, that kind of further deepened this epistemological crisis I was going through. Another component of it was when I read Fear and Trembling by Soren Kierkegaard. Now that's a fascinating book. Kierkegaard, he takes the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. It's a story from the Old Testament, if you've never, never come across it, where this father, Abraham, he takes his only son, and because God has commanded him to, they travel to some mountains and he goes to sacrifice his son to God. Kierkegaard really digs into this. It felt a little bit like he was he, he was making me a little bit uncomfortable by how much he was really sticking this question to me as a reader. How am I supposed to comprehend Abraham as an ethical person? reading this story. Like if, if that happened in the world today, if I were to, my next door neighbor were to decide to go and do this, we'd report him and he'd get locked in prison if he wanted to go sacrifice his son in the mountains to God. If he claimed that God had spoken to him and told him to do this, we would lock the guy in prison. So as I'm reading this and, you know, Kierkegaard's presenting it to me that way, how can we understand Abraham 
as an ethical person when this is what he's done. And Kierkegaard, just to be clear, he wasn't trying to destroy faith. He actually thought Abraham was the model for faith. And he he concludes, unsatisfyingly, that we just can't understand Abraham, and therefore we can't make rational or ethical sense of somebody that acts in faith, that these ultimate acts of faith are not, they can't be ethically understood. And so that, that left me really scratching my head, like, okay, how am I to distinguish between a psychopath and somebody that's just doing God's will? If in this classic story of faith, you can't tell the difference, you just can't. So that really, I was, I was asking, like, how can I judge between good and bad when I suddenly found this example of where my old models that I'd relied on, that old dogma of God spoke to Abraham, and I'm just going to accept that, and therefore Abraham was justified in going and doing this, I started to think about it critically. And I started to wonder, how can I know between good and bad? So anyway, that's Fear and Trembling. Great book also one that I recommend. The other piece that helped me through this, this epistemological, well, really, I don't know if it helped me, but it helped trigger this epistemological crisis in a way that helped me to come out on the, the other end thinking more clearly, although it was a bit uncomfortable to go through at the time. And that was the book, Judgment in Managerial Decision-Making. Now, I don't know if I recognize, recommend that book. It's a little bit of a tough read, but there's another book by Daniel Kahneman that talks about the same topic. And it's, it's a great read. It's called thinking fast and slow. It's, it's a pretty popular book, really great stuff where he goes over a lot of his research on how irrational we can be. And it's called thinking fast and slow. Cause he's talking about two different parts of our brain. He calls them system one and system two. One of them it, is the very intuitive part of our brain that makes snap decisions. And then the second part is the rational thinking brain that really processes information. And, you know, that's the one that does math. Anyway, great book. Another one that I highly recommend. But as I was reading it, I'm reading about things like the associative effect. The associative effect is where one activity or you being introduced to a certain stimulus will cause you to act in a certain way because you've, your brain has made that association subconsciously. You're not even aware of it. So for example, they did this study where they, they had people go through and memorize words, and then they asked them to walk down a short hall to the second part of the experiment. Now, what the experiment was actually about was their walk down the hall and how long it took them. So there were certain people that they gave words that your brain would associate with being old. So old was one of them, aging, ancient. So all these words that your brain associated with being old. And and then they also had a control group where they That group just got random words that did not have to do with being old. And then they measured how long it took each group to walk down the hall. And the group that had spent time memorizing words that their brain associated with being old walked significantly slower down that hall to the second part of the experiment. 
Now, there, there's these things that our brain is doing in the background that we just we're not aware of and we, we can't understand. Actually, as I as I was reading judgment in managerial decision making, I was talking to my boss about it at work because it was talking about all the bias that managers can have as they're making business decisions. And it was funny. One of our executives was, he was eavesdropping. He overheard the, the conversation. He was sitting on the other side of a cubicle and he stands up and he says, you know, all that stuff's interesting, but you'd be amazed at how often you're right when you just go with your gut. And you know, I, I had to walk away and laugh because that's the exact kind of thing that the book is talking about, where this executive is probably, there's, there are different forms of bias that are informing him that his decisions were correct. There's confirmation bias and there's recency bias. And he's, he's never seeing how much better a decision could have been had he made it based on data and logic he's just seeing that his what his, the result of his gut decision was and he looks for the good in that and justifies oh it was a good decision anyway so i read that and that got me thinking okay how can i trust my own brain my brain's doing all these things in the background that i don't understand my brain you know there are things like confirmation bias where it feels uncomfortable to look at information that challenges what we what we believe it feels really like icky and uncomfortable and so without us realizing it like you can't really stop this from happening you can be aware of it and like kind of stop some of it but it's going to happen regardless i'm i'm convinced that you can't stop this from happening your brain is going to automatically skip over information that it finds challenging and uncomfortable. And it's going to go right to the information that confirms what you believe. This happens all the time. Go Think about the most controversial subject in which you have a strong opinion right now. And then think about Googling it to find out more information. Are you going through and clicking on the links that look like they confirm what you want to believe? Or are you going through and trying to find the links that prove you wrong? It's very rare to be a person that wants to go through and find things that prove you wrong. You have to work against the the wiring of your brain to do that. Your brain doesn't want to do that. So that was really interesting to learn about that and to think about, you know, my own beliefs and how, what, what does this mean for my own beliefs, my own opinions? Can I really trust the conclusions I've come to, if my brain's doing all of this stuff in the background that I'm not even aware of, and it's creating this worldview for me that may not actually be reflective of reality. So anyway, yeah, I had this crisis of epistemology is what we'll call it. I wouldn't really call it a crisis of faith. Uh, I know that a lot of people call those kinds of experiences that. I didn't really have that. It was more epistemology of how do we all come to a common understanding of what is true. So I know that some of the more religious listeners that I might have are probably thinking about, well, you can ask God and God will tell you through, confirm it to you. Like when you read the scriptures, you'll you'll feel this feeling, the the Holy Ghost or God's spirit, you'll feel these things that confirm it to you of what's right. And yes, that is one form of 
epistemology, like that's the epistemological model that you've made for yourself to determine what is true. Now, what happens when we get a bunch of people in a room that have to make a decision together? And not everyone has that same model. Not everyone believes that same model actually works. We're going to have to find a common way to determine what is true. We can't rely on that one when we're working with a diverse group of people. And so that's really why it was a crisis of epistemology for me is because that's what it became about. That's what I was thinking about. So anyway, I finally got some grounding when I read John Stuart Mill's book on liberty. It's a fantastic read. It's one of my favorite books of all time. I highly recommend reading it. John Stuart Mill was a brilliant guy. So as I'm reading this, I'm coming across things where Mill is arguing for things like free thought and free speech. He doesn't spend a lot of time on free thought just because he figures that's more of a personal matter. And when it comes to liberty, we're talking about how we act as a group. So he dives a lot more into like free speech. And as he's talking about free speech, he he really articulates something that makes a lot more sense to me on how we can come to a common understanding of truth. He says things like, like this is from, from his book. He says, people are accustomed to believe that their feelings on subjects of this nature are better than reasons and render reasons unnecessary. The practical principle which guides them to their opinions on the regulation of human conduct is the feeling in each person's mind that everybody should be required to act as he and those with whom he sympathizes would like them to act. But an opinion on a point of conduct not supported by reasons can only count as one person's preference. Here's another really good one. In the case of any person whose judgment is really deserving of confidence, How has it become so? Because he has kept his mind open to criticism of his opinions and conduct. Because it has been his practice to listen to all that could be said against him, to profit as much by it as was just, and expound to himself and upon occasion to others the fallacy of what was fallacious because he has felt that the only way in which a human being can make some approach to knowing the whole of a subject is by hearing what can be said about it by persons of every variety of opinion and studying all modes in which it can be looked at by every character of mind. I think that's one of my favorite quotes from the book. It's so good. So really what he's saying is that when we shut down anybody from expressing their opinion, we lose the opportunity to learn from them. It's, it's basically us thinking that we're infallible, that our opinions are infallible. So as I'm thinking back to my own dogmatic way of living prior to 2015, I'm, I'm realizing that I wasn't fully open to criticisms of my opinions and my worldview. And because of that, I didn't know how solid they were. I didn't know... like. I didn't know if there were better arguments out there. And it really introduced me to the idea of both free speech and, and again, we don't need to get into political stuff and political ideologies. If you're skeptical of free speech, that's fine. Like this is not a podcast where we're going to beat you over the head with it. I think there's merit to it. I think there are also some arguments against elements of free speech, but we're not going to go there. It's not part of this podcast. But really what he's talking about is that we need to 
get a variety of opinions. If we don't do that, we might be missing elements of truth that will be beneficial to us to making an opinion. And then also the idea of a steel man argument. A steel man argument is where if you're sending a man into battle for you, your argument is this metaphorical man. You want him to be made of steel. So a steel man argument is the strongest possible argument for a position. Now, if you have a steel man argument for something you believe, and every time you listen to a critic, you're only coming across their straw man arguments, the weakest, like made of straw, yours is going to appear very, very strong. What you need to do is seek out the steel man arguments of your opponents. And then you can test how strong your beliefs and opinions actually are. And I loved that. That made so much sense to me that, okay, that's a way that I can find what might be true. Like at this time, I'm really thinking about it in a political sense. Like, okay, so I need to explore the strongest opinions or the strongest arguments of those that have the opposing opinion to me. So that was really, really, really helpful. I loved what John Stuart Mill had to say about that. So the last part of this epistemological journey that I want to go over is when I read one of Plato's dialogues called Theotetus. And yes, you guessed it. That is where the name of this podcast comes from. So in Theotetus, Socrates is having a conversation with a young mathematics student named Theotetus. And Socrates presents the question to him, what is knowledge? And then they have this whole discussion about how we can define knowledge. And really, it's one of the first writings we have about epistemology. But the thing that struck me the most about it was how Socrates didn't give Theotetus the answers. All he did was ask Theotetus questions about what Theotetus thought. And then he used those answers to help Theotetus craft a, a coherent argument about what knowledge was. And I really like that model because I think that when we're with a diverse group of people and we're doing, you know, all these tools of critical thinking, we're doing the things that John Stuart Mill talked about of getting the steel man argument from every person that's involved in the conversation. The, the key piece is that it has to be a conversation. We're not going to be able to all just come together and everybody in one line states their opinion and we choose one of them. No, it has to be a conversation. And that's really what Socrates demonstrates with Theotetus, that the two of them are having a conversation about Theotetus's ideas. And Socrates is following up. He's clarifying. He's, he's challenging when he doesn't feel that Theotetus is given a good enough answer, when there's still pieces of the discussion that Theotetus hasn't adequately addressed. And the reason that I've named the podcast Theotetus is because I want to model it after that pattern. I'd like to bring people on to interview, and I'm just going to ask questions to clarify what it is that they believe. Some of those questions might be challenging to push on pieces of their argument that maybe they haven't 
adequately thought through to just clarify. I really just love that model that Socrates presents us in his dialogues. And because we're discussing epistemology, what I, I would like the interview to be about is a deeply held belief that the person that I'm bringing on to interview holds. And I don't want to choose that. I'm, I'm going to invite people onto the podcast and they can choose the topic. They It just needs to be a firmly held belief of theirs. And then we're going to go through and just have a Socratic type of conversation. I'm going to ask questions about that belief, how they came to that conclusion, and I'm going to push on it. Some of those questions might be a little bit challenging, but it's really to help refine everyone's thinking and help me understand where where whoever I'm interviewing is coming from and why they have formulated those beliefs, why they've come to those conclusions. I hope that as we do that, we can explore some of the different models for epistemology that we develop ourselves, how it is that we internally come to certain conclusions. And also, I'd like to model the tools of critical thinking. As we're having a conversation, I'm going to push on some of the some of the answers that are given. Now, I don't want this to sound really intimidating. Like I, This is completely voluntary. I want to be respectful of people and respectful of their beliefs. I just I want to explore those and how they've come to those those conclusions. And at first pass at hearing that, that might sound kind of scary. And it is. It's a, it's it's a little challenging to talk about your core beliefs in a way where you critically analyze them. And Socrates actually in his conversation with Theotetus, he gives this awesome analogy. Theotetus starts to push back on Socrates a little bit and say, you know what, Socrates, I don't know if I want to do this. I know there's other people that you've had these types of conversations with, and I've heard about them, and I have some anxiety about this. He actually uses that word. He says, I'm feeling some anxiety about engaging in this conversation with you. And Socrates responds with, well, Theotetus, think of it this way. I am a midwife, and you are a woman in labor, metaphorically speaking. Labor is not a pleasant experience. It's, it's difficult, but good comes from it as, as new life comes into the world. And just as a woman in labor is going through that difficult experience and in order to bring new life into the world— Theotetus, I'm asking you to go through this challenging experience that might be a little bit uncomfortable of discussing some of your beliefs and what will spring from it are new ideas or just clearer thinking about the ideas that you hold. And I'm going to just play the role of midwife. I'm not coming up with any of these answers. I don't want to bring that to fruition. I want that to be something that I'm merely helping pull out of you, Theotetus. I want it to come from you. I'm just here to help refine it and help sharpen your thinking. And that's the role I really want to play as host of this podcast when I bring people on to interview. I, I want to merely be the midwife that helps them through this experience of 
critically analyzing some of their beliefs and and just exploring those and understanding where they come from. Now, all that being said, I want it to be very, very clear that I don't have any intended outcome here. I'm not trying to cause people to lose their beliefs. I don't want to create doubt. I think it's really healthy to have some core values that you live by, whether those are affiliated with a religion or not. And so I don't want to cast doubt on those. I'm not a nihilist. And if you're not familiar with that term, that's just a belief that nothing matters. I don't believe that. I think it's good for us to have meaning and morals and values in our lives. But I think it's good for us to also critically analyze those so that we can be more tolerant of others that may not hold those same values or those same morals or beliefs. And that's really what I'm going for here. So if we have, if I have a conversation with somebody and they walk away from it thinking, you know what? My beliefs are not as solid as I thought they were. I might need to go reassess because I couldn't answer some of those questions adequately. Then that's great. Or if somebody comes on and they walk away feeling like I had all the answers to everything he asked and I have good reason to believe what I do. Like, that's great too. Now you have good tangible reasons for why you believe what you do. And it's not just some tacit knowledge or some dogma that you've you've latched onto. You actually have now thought it through and you have good reasons for believing what you do. And if somebody walks away feeling like, you know what? I didn't see any value in that conversation and I'm going to forget about it and I'm going to continue to believe what I believe because I, it makes me happy and I like the way it directs my life, then that's fine too. I'm not trying to change the way anyone believes. All I'm trying to do is help us to think critically about those beliefs so that we understand a little bit more about ourselves and we can better have conversations with others about what we believe. So I hope that that's clear. I hope that anybody that might be curious about the podcast or would like to come interview understands that, that I'm not trying to persuade you to believe anything or disbelieve anything. I just want to understand why you believe what you do. And in the midst of that conversation, I might push on those beliefs to really to really try to understand why they exist. So if you would be interested in coming on the podcast and doing an interview in this format where you choose one of your firmly held beliefs and we just have a conversation about it, I would love to have you on. I'd be thrilled. Go ahead and reach out to me at my email. It's theatetispodcast at gmail.com. And that's spelled T-H-E-A-E-T-E-T-U-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Hope to have some conversations here in the next few weeks and we can explore epistemology and think about our beliefs critically together. Thanks. Thanks.